Psalm 16. Let me just read it for you. We're going to read all the verses, not very long. Starts out saying a miktom of David. There's a uh, little bit of discussion over what the word miktom means. Some people believe it means uh, something related to, to music. It's a musical term. Some people believe it, it carries with the idea of covering. So it's like a, it's a way of saying this is a, kind of an unveiled mystery that David is sharing with us. There's some debate on exactly what miktom means. Uh, probably a musical term is the way I understand it. It says, A miktom of David, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. I like that phrase, fullness of joy. That's what I've titled Uh, Our study tonight, fullness of joy. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, You say, wait, what are the Psalms all about? If you had to summarize the book of Psalms, how would you summarize them? Well, I've given you some uh, thoughts here from Dr. Kendall Easley. He does a great job summarizing the books of the Bible. And here's his summary of the book of Psalms. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. That's what the Psalms are about. What we see in the Psalms is we see people going through all different types of circumstances. We see psalmists writing from the mountaintop of human experience. We see psalmists who are walking through the valley of tribulation uh, in these chapters. And regardless of the circumstances, we see in the Psalms, regardless of the emotions that life uh, engenders in someone, uh, God is worthy of worship and God is worthy of our trust and confidence. That's what the Psalms are about. So it's really helpful for us to see, hey, no matter what life brings our direction, the Psalms remind us God is worthy of worship and the Psalms remind us that God is worthy of our trust and our confidence. And we've made it to Psalm 16 and Psalm 16 is about the joy that comes from having a close, personal, intimate relationship with God. It speaks of fullness of joy. And so what I've done is I've just kind of broken down the psalm into six parts, and I've given you six reasons, six reasons that we can find our joy in God. Six reasons to find our joy in God. If you are seeking joy in someone else or in something else other than the one true God, you will be sorely disappointed. Only God, listen to me, can deliver when it comes to fullness of joy. All the other things that promise joy are counterfeit. And and we need to understand that it's only in a real growing relationship with God that we will experience a fullness of joy, listen to me, that circumstances can't take away or affect. And so I'm going to give you six reasons that we ought to seek 
our joy in God. We ought to find our joy in God, that, that God is worthy of us seeking our joy in Him. Number one, God is our shelter. Why should we find our joy in God? Because He is our shelter. Look what the Bible says there in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me in God, for in you I take refuge. Here, what David is saying is that he has sought God for his help. He has sought a relationship with God uh, to find his contentment, to find his protection, to find his provision. He is seeking uh, to find life, to find shelter, to find abundance in a relationship with God. So to make God your shelter means you seek out, you embrace God in a relationship. Now it's interesting to note here that the word God is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is a sort of a general term for God used throughout uh, the Bible. And he calls it God here Elohim. He says, in you Elohim, I take refuge. So what do we learn from that? There is great peace when we place our lives in his hand. There's great peace when we place our lives in his hand. David's saying, you're my refuge. I'm seeking you for my provision, for my protection. And, and, and because David knew that God was his refuge, no matter what life brought his direction, he had peace. And he had even more than peace. He had great joy. And so we can have joy in the fact that God is our shelter. And I've shared this with you many times before, but it's important to remember what it means that God is your shelter. When God is your shelter, that means you belong to him, you are in his hands, and nothing and no one can touch your life unless God allows it. Amen? Isn't that good news? And if God allows it, he has a reason for it. He has a purpose in it. And so uh, because you are in God's hand, because he is your shelter, because he is your God, nothing can touch your life unless he allows it. And so we can have joy, we can have peace in the reality that God is our refuge, God is our shelter. You know, there are really only two groups of people in the world. There are those who have run to God through Jesus Christ and made him their shelter, and those who are seeking shelter and peace and joy in other things and in other places. And just by way of personal testimony, I'm grateful that God is my shelter. Uh, I have peace in my life because God is my shelter. I, I have peace in my life because I've run to God instead of run away from God. And David had that same peace and joy. So we can have joy in God because God is our shelter. Number two, we can find our joy in God because God is our sovereign. God is our sovereign. Look what it says in verse two. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, if you look closely at those two words, uh, Lord, you notice there's a a difference. Do, Do you see the difference there? The first word, Lord, is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, you are seeing uh, the the uh, the divine name of God, or that's the that's the way the that's a representation of the divine name of God. Sometimes translated or pronounced Yahweh, it's the Hebrew consonants Y H W H. Some people believe it's pronounced Yahweh. The Latin is where we get Jehovah from, uh, but that's the divine name of God. That's the name 
that God revealed of himself. It comes from the verb of being. It's, remember when uh, God was at, uh, with Moses at the burning bush, and Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? Because God was sending Moses to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And uh, God said, tell them that I am that I am sent you. Uh, that I am that I am is, the, is, is basically the Hebrew verb of being, uh, which is where we get Y-H-W-H. And so this is the divine name of God. It speaks of the, the one true God, and this is a covenant name. And so by David using this name, Y-H-W-H, which is represented by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, David says, I have a relationship with you. I say to the Lord in whom I have a relationship. This is not generic God. This is a specific God, the God that has revealed himself through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now notice the second word, or the second time you see Lord, it's capital L, then lowercase o-r-d. Whenever you see that, that's the Hebrew word Adonai, uh, which is the sort of the general term for Lord. It's, it's, it's similar to the Greek word kurios, which is the, the general idea that's translated Lord in the New Testament. Now let me just kind of take a step aside here for a moment. Let's get a parenthetical thought for a moment. Uh, the Psalms really are great aids to our prayer lives. I've told you this when we began our journey through the Psalms. We can take the words of the Psalms and make them our own and pray them to God, uh, taking these words, making them our own words, or we can get some prayer prompts from reading through the Psalms. They're great material for prayer. And, and sometimes our prayer lives can get kind of stale and kind of dull. Have you ever found yourself... Uh, using the same term for God over and over again. Perhaps in your prayer life you keep saying, Father, 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 or Lord, 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 Lord. And, and, and you've, you've, you've prayed for a few minutes and you've said the word Father like 800 times. You said the word Lord like you know 500 times. And you just, you, it's just kind of repetition. You're saying the same thing over and over again. Notice here that in, in two verses, David uses three different titles for God. Elohim. Yahweh and Adonai. Isn't that cool? And and so try a little bit of variety in your prayer life. Try using some different titles, some different names for God as you address him. And and those different names, those different titles represent different things about the character and nature of God. And they can really cause your heart to, to rise up in worship as you consider who God is and what he's done for you. Say, wait, where do I start? Well, maybe start with, uh, you know, Elohim and Adonai and Yahweh, you know, use those titles or, you know, go to Google and type in names of God or titles of God and you'll get a long list of different names and titles of God and, and sprinkle those into your prayer life. Incorporate those into your prayer life so that you are having some variety instead of saying Lord, 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 or Father, 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 Father. Am I the only one that finds myself doing that? Do you ever find yourself doing that? You, use some variety and, and call God by the different titles that he gives us in the word of God. And I think you'll find that really uh, can enhance your prayer life and keep you more engaged in your heart and in your mind. So, okay, parentheses is over. We're back into the study, okay? Uh, I just wanted to kind of point that out. Two verses, three different titles for God. So he, in, in this, this second verse, he says, Lord, Yahweh, covenant God, God has revealed himself through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You are my Adonai. You are my Lord. You are my master. You are my boss. You call the shots. In other words, David here, by saying this, is bowing his heart 
to the sovereignty of God over his life. He recognizes that God is in control. He recognizes that God is calling the shots over his life. And listen to me, there is great joy in that. Listen to me, if, if I were in control of things, I'd be a nervous wreck because I'd make a mess of things, wouldn't you? Now think if we had control of the universe just for a few minutes. It would be a mess, right? I'm glad that I don't have to make the universe run. I'm thankful that it's not up to me as to how everything works out ultimately. I'm grateful that God is on his throne. And it's not up to me. It's up to him. And so I can trust him. And as I recognize that he's sovereign, as I recognize that he's on his throne, I want to submit to him as king. I want to submit to him as Lord. I want him to, 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 I want to recognize his lordship over my life. That's what David's doing here. So there's great joy that comes from knowing that God is our sovereign. God deserves our ultimate allegiance. He deserves our ultimate allegiance. Because he's the one that rules and reigns over the universe. He's the creator. As the creator, he calls the shots. And because he calls the shots, that gives us great joy and peace. So the first reason we can find joy in God is God is our shelter. Secondly, God is our sovereign. Third, God is our source. Look what he says in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. Verse 3, as for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So he's saying, from your hand and being around your people, I experience good. In other words, God here is seen by David as the source of everything good in his life. So David was a good theologian because the Bible teaches that anything good in our life can be traced back to the hand of a good God. For example, James chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. Isn't that good? Every good and perfect gift is from above. So if there's anything good in your life, anything, guess what? The source is God. He's the source of everything good in our life. And and he says there, I have no good apart from you. Everything good comes from you. So everything good in our lives can be traced back to God. God is our source. So if God is our source, if, if good things come from his hand, then we don't have to look for good things from other sources, do we? We don't have to waste our time and energy and effort trying to find joy in other places when we realize that goodness, joy, peace uh, comes from the hand of our God. So, God is our source. That's another reason to find our joy in God. Number four, God is our satisfaction. God is our satisfaction. We can find joy because he satisfies what he says in verse 4, The stars of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David's saying, I have no interest in being around those who are not worshiping God, those who have not made God their refuge. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to, I don't want to enter into the sorrows that they will experience because they have run from God instead of to God. Then he says in verse 5, The Lord is 
my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The ESV Study Bible here says, The terms portion, lot, lines, and inheritance evoke the allocation of the land into family plots. The song promotes contentment with the arrangements of one's life, seeing them as providentially ordered. So David here is saying, just like a patriarch divvies up the land to his, to his offspring, to his children. He gives one, one son this piece of land, and a daughter this piece of land, and a, another child this piece of land. He's given them these lines, these portions of the inheritance. David's saying, God... As my father, you have given me my portion. You have, you have given me uh, uh, providentially what you want me to have. You have arranged my life, and I'm satisfied in the way that you have arranged my life. And so here's what David's saying. Because I have you, I, I'm satisfied with my life. Because, because no matter where the lines fall, you are my portion. You are my cup. And if I have you, this is in your notes, we realize God is enough. We will find true satisfaction in life. If I have you, I have enough. That's what David's saying. So regardless of where the lines fall in your life, no matter what God has allocated to you in terms of material possessions and just your lot in life, no matter how good things are or how hard things are, if God is your portion, if you drink from his cup, you have enough. You really, really do. And so God is our Source. I, I think I've shared this story several times before, but it really illustrates this, and it's really the first time I had to grapple with this idea. We had a gentleman come and visit my former church when I was a youth minister, and my pastor and I went to go visit this gentleman, and he had a, he had a, a physical handicap, so he was unable to work, and um, he, had, he, lived, he really lived in, in, in abject poverty. And we went down to downtown, and we went to a, a, a housing area where he lived with some government assistance and and we walked in there and the the smell was awful and it was dirty and we walked in his little apartment and he had I mean just just nothing I mean there's just nothing in there and he was struggling and he had some things going on in his life physically and emotionally and spiritually and and lived in such a hard thing that it really didn't have any family members to turn to and it was just a very sad thing and I remember walking out of that that uh that place, uh, and, and we were walking back to the vehicle, and I was with my pastor, and the pastor said this. He said, I wonder if that was me, if I was that man living in that apartment, in that condition, with his handicap, with his hardship, I wonder if Jesus would be enough. And I thought, that's a really good question. And I began to think on the ride back to the church building, I wonder if that were me, if Jesus would be enough for me. And so listen to me. If the lines fall for you in good places and things are good and life is blessed, that's one thing. But if the lines begin to fall in difficult places and life gets difficult and life gets hard, the question is, will your relationship with Jesus sustain you? Can you see that Jesus satisfies, that he is enough? And if he is enough... You can have joy no matter what life brings your direction. You can have joy no matter the circumstances because you have Jesus, right? Listen, if you have nothing but you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have everything but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. Nothing. And so if you have Christ, you can have joy in your life. There's a a, a song that really 
communicates this point. It's called satisfied. Let me just read the words to you. I'm not surely not going to sing it. Maybe bring Travis down, let him sing it. But let me, I'll just read the words to you. The song says, All my life long I had panted for a draught from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings through his life. I now am saved. Then he goes on to say, Feeding on the husks around me, a picture of the prodigal son. Till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his life, I now am saved. Isn't that good? And so Jesus satisfies. And if you have Jesus, you can have joy because you have everything that you need. Number five, another reason we can have joy in our lives, God is our stability. God is our stability. Look what it says in verse 7. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He's speaking here of God being his stability. Notice he mentions two aspects of God stabilizing influences. life. First he mentions his guidance there in verse 8. He says, um, I mean verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, he instructs my heart. And so he's saying here, one of the, the reasons that God keeps me stable is he guides me through life. God is, a, is a, a, a sure and steady guide for us. We ought to follow his lead in this life. But also, he mentions that God gives him strength to not be shaken. He says there, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Here's what Warren Wiersbe says. With the Lord as his guide and guard, he had nothing to fear. He would not be moved. The future is your friend. I love this. The future is your friend when Jesus is your Lord. Let me say it again. The future is your friend when Jesus is your Lord. Amen? That's good. And so you don't have to fear the future because God is your stability. And so really the picture here is, it, it, as I read this, I thought about, a, I thought about um, that's what I'm looking for. I was going to say naval, but... Um, not aquatic. What's the word I'm looking for? Things pertaining to boats. What would be a good word for that? What's that? Nautical. Okay, nautical. Yeah, good. Nautical. So I was thinking nautically. All right. Is that even a word, nautically? Um, put an L on it. I was, thinking, I was thinking in nautical terms. Okay, good. Thank you for that. And um, I was thinking of a boat. And, you know, a boat has, has a rudder, which guides it in certain directions. And a boat has a ballast which keeps it stable in the water. And, and that's basically what uh, David is saying here. He's saying, hey, God is my, God is my guide. He, he takes me in the direction he wants me to go. And God is my ballast. He keeps me steady. He keeps me from tipping over. He keeps me from being overwhelmed by life. And so God is our stability. And, and listen to me, you, you, you can just, when, you, when you're around somebody that is secure in their relationship with God, you can tell it. No matter what comes their direction, 
they're stable, they're not shaken, they're following Jesus, and, and they know that he has them in his hands. So God is our stability. But let me give you one final reason that we can have joy in the Lord. Number one, God is our shelter, God is our sovereign, God is our source, God is our satisfaction, God is our stability. But last, God is our Savior. God is our Savior. Now, the the psalm takes an interesting turn here in verse 10. Look what he says. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, just at face value, there's something interesting about verse 10. He says, you won't, you won't abandon me to Sheol. Now, in the Hebrew mind, Sheol was the place of the dead. He says, you're not, you're not going to abandon me to the dead. To the point where, um, uh, the person talking about here, to the, the point where uh, I will see corruption. Now, is this referring to David? Because... David died, okay, physically. He was buried, and his body has seen corruption. Now it's just turned into dust, right? Right? So this can't be referring to David. Who's this referring to? I mean, speaking of someone who would not be abandoned to the place of the dead and would not see final corruption. Well, here David is being used by the Spirit of God to write prophetically about someone who was to come, and the New Testament leaves us with no doubt as to who he's talking about because this verse is quoted in two places in the New Testament referring to someone in particular. So, look there with me in Acts chapter 2, Sermon of Peter, Acts 2 verse Peter's preaching here in the day of Pentecost. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. Or, well, back at the verse, uh, I'm sorry, back at the verse 27. He quotes Psalm 16. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So he, he quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation version of the Old Testament here. And it says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's saying those verses in Psalm 16 can't be talking about David because he went to the place of the dead, he was buried, and he, he decayed. He, he was corrupted. So who is it talking about? Well, look what he says. Being therefore a prophet, verse 30, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the who? Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so here's what Peter says in his sermon. Prophetically, David was talking about Jesus in Psalm 16. He was speaking there of the fact that Jesus Christ would die, he would be buried, but he would not be abandoned to the place of the dead, his flesh would not see corruption. This speaks clearly of the resurrection. And Paul said the same thing. Look with me over in Acts chapter 13, verse 36.
Acts 13, verse 36, first missionary journey. Paul's preaching. Back to verse 35, he says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's quoting Psalm 16. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruptions. I'm not talking about him, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. He's talking here about Jesus Christ. And so, very clearly here, Psalm 16 uh, is, is prophetically speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that the psalm begins with David talking about his own life, talking about his relationship with God, God with his refuge, and, and God was his source, and God was his sovereign and his satisfaction. But as he, begins, as he continues to talk, uh, there's a shift uh, in verse 10 where he begins to prophetically speak of Jesus Christ. So this psalm predicts the resurrection. That's what verse 10 predicts. And this psalm, back in Psalm 16, highlights salvation's results. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, because he was resurrected, defeating death itself, there is salvation available for those who make God their refuge. And, and David says in verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now some would say, well, verse 11 speaks of the relationship Jesus has with the Father after his resurrection, that he forever experiences that closeness with the Father uh, and experiences the fullness of joy. But this verse also speaks to those who will be resurrected because Jesus was resurrected, us. Uh, Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there's coming a day when Christ will return and raise us from the dead, right? New glorified bodies. And because we're resurrected the same way Jesus was, we will experience verse 11 just like Jesus did and is. And so what will salvation look like? What are the results of salvation for those that know Christ, those that are resurrected? First of all, God's presence in this life. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And so in this life, uh, because we're saved, because we know Jesus, we have a personal relationship with God. God's presence with us every step of the way. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And This psalm highlights God's presence in eternity. In eternity. At your right hand are pleasures, how long? Forevermore. And so here's the deal. If you have made God your refuge because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, you experience God's presence in this life, and you experience God's presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And listen to me, in his presence, there's fullness of joy. So if you have him, if you have a relationship with him, you are experiencing, full, or you have the capacity to experience the fullness of joy. Or let me say it like this. This is the last line in your notes. The greatest gift of salvation is God himself. In his presence is fullness of joy. The greatest gift of salvation is God himself. Now, if we're not careful, when we talk about being saved, we find ourselves talking about a lot of the benefits of salvation without talking about the greatest gift of salvation. I read a book years ago by John Piper called God is the Gospel. That was the title of the book, provocative title. And he has a, a, a paragraph in there. He said, he said if, if you could go to heaven and experience streets of gold and mansions prepared for you and, you know, the beauty of that place and the, 
the new Jerusalem and the the splendor and the glory of, of heaven. If you could go to heaven, but you knew God wouldn't be there, would you still want to go? And his point was, what ultimately makes heaven heaven is that's where God is. And the greatest gift of salvation is you get God. You get a relationship with Him. You get His presence in this life, in the life to come. You get Him. And that is the greatest gift of salvation. So yes, when we're saved, we're, we're forgiven. But listen to me, forgiveness allows us to know Him, right? It, it allows us to draw close to Him. We get heaven, but heaven allows us to be with Him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So the greatest gift of salvation is God. He's the greatest gift. You get Him. And so make sure that you rejoice in the greatest gift, the ultimate gift of our salvation experience. God is our Savior. And David's saying, Hey, life is difficult. I go through tough times. I've got enemies. There are people around me that don't love you. God, they're evil. But in your presence, there's fullness of joy. You show me the path of life. And I know that I'll have your presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So the greatest gift of salvation is God himself. That's really what Psalm 16 uh, leads us to consider tonight. And so you say, wait, I don't have joy. Don't have it, want it, don't have it. Listen to me. You need to realize that ultimate joy is found in a relationship with Jesus that is ever deepening and growing. So if you're here tonight and you say, wait, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, the starting point uh, is to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Uh, the, The good news is that Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty you deserve to pay, I deserve to pay. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He's alive today, and he's mighty to save. The Bible says if if anyone... uh, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, they will be saved. So you can, uh, you can place your faith in Christ, embrace him as your Lord and Savior, accept the free gift of salvation he offers you, and you can be saved and enter into a relationship with God. And that's the starting place for joy. If you are a Christian, if you have made that decision to follow Christ, then the way you find joy is by is by seeking to deepen that relationship with Christ, deepen that intimacy with Christ. The closer and closer you get to Jesus, guess what? The more joy you'll have. And the farther you get away from Jesus, guess what? The less joy you'll have because he says, in your presence, what? Is fullness of joy. So if you want to have joy in your life, walk with Jesus. That sounds really simple, doesn't it? But it's the truth of God's word. Walk with Jesus. Get in his word. Let him talk to you every day. Talk to him in prayer. Uh, Take your life to him. When you're walking through valleys, walk with Jesus through those valleys. When you're on the mountaintop, celebrate with Jesus. But, But seek Jesus every day. Fix your eyes upon him. And even though life is difficult, he can give you a deep abiding sense of joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy joy.